Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Peri-urban areas are dynamic places at the interface between our cities and rural areas that, as our cities grow, are under huge pressures from housing and other developments that compete with small to medium scale agriculture, such as horticulture, and other activities that contribute to local and regional food production and food security. Peri-urban areas are also the living lungs for our cities. They provide clean air, they help reduce urban heat, they're home to and enable multiple and linked up environmental values, ecological services and things that we love and share. And as populations increase, peri-urban areas are also where the risks of climate change and severe weather events are often most heightened. Joining me to talk about agroecological and landscape innovation on Sydney's peri-urban edge is Dr Roger Atwater who is the Senior Manager of Environmental Sustainability at Western Sydney University. That includes the Centre of Excellence in Peri-Urban Futures at the Hawkesbury campus in the hawkesbury Nepean region that has experienced way more than its fair share of extreme events recently. Welcome, Roger. It's so great to speak with you. Thanks for your time. How are you? Very well. Great to be here. Roger, where are you joining us from? Is it the Blue Mountains? I am at home in the Blue Mountains. However, my uh, home campus, the Hawkesbury campus, in near Richmond, about 80 kilometres northwest of the CBD of Sydney. And I'd like to acknowledge that in that location, I'd be speaking from a country of the Burrabarongal people, the Durham Nation. And uh, I certainly acknowledge their ancestors as their being traditional custodians and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Yeah, such an important part of Sydney. Roger, is that is Sydney where you grew up? Uh, my family is actually from Newcastle. I'm a BHP family. Ah. I came to Sydney. I went to James Roos High School before uh, going to Western Australia and doing um, ag science at uh, University of Western Australia uh, and working with the Department of Agriculture there before moving around a bit. And now I'm uh, very happily settled in the Blue Mountains and under normal conditions commute each day down to the Hawkesbury campus uh, but also travel across all of the other Western Sydney Uni campuses across uh, the Sydney Basin. And how is your home area of the Blue Mountains faring and looking now? Were you affected by the bushfires? It was near us. Uh, I was overseas, but I was still able to keep a track by the fires near me and see the, the, the huge areas of fire to the north and the south. But where I am in um, Bullaburra was fairly clear. I was involved just through my local RFS when I came back because there was, of course, a lot of activity and it was very intense west of here, just around the, the new year. That was astounding. And then, of course, we had the floods in the Hawkesbury in February, March this year, which completely cut us off except for one access. Yeah, they're just a combination. Uh, I'm lucky to have such a nice place to live in and to act as a refuge because I think everyone recognises that in questions of resilience, the the compounding impacts of uh, social dislocation, impact of fires, floods, COVID is, is a really big challenge to all of us. Western Sydney's Hawkesbury campus, where much of your work is located, is one of Australia's oldest agricultural college campuses. I think it was established in 1894 or thereabouts. It has a footprint of some 1,400 hectares, is close to the Blue Mountains World Heritage Area, and includes some 400 hectares of remnant, really precious Cumberland Plain vegetation. And as you've sort of said, that the campus is located close by to Richmond and Windsor in the Greater Sydney region, and that area extends up to the beautiful Bells Line Road and orchard growing mountain areas that have all really been at the front line of hideously extreme events over the past two years, drought and water shortages, the crazy bushfires, and then, as you said earlier this year, record-breaking floods. It's been quite a roller coaster, hasn't it? And with COVID, that's just um, accelerating in other directions uh, and compounding lots of challenges. Would you like to perhaps paint a bit of a picture or a helicopter view of how you 
sort of feel and see the local community in the Richmond-Windsor area dealing with all these challenges one upon another and how the region seems to be coping or in terms of recovery and, and is it getting back to some sense of everyday life and business? If I might start for a bit of history, so Richmond was one of the Macquarie townships established about 1820, and then the areas between us and the RAF base were part of the commons, um, like Ham Common, which were cleared by Governor King. So we've had a long-term uh, involvement of people in the region undertaking agricultural activities. Many of the the magnificent traditional houses are located in spaces where there was a bit of an understanding of the, the local landscape patterns and the risks. For example, on our river farm, which is just north of Richmond, not next to the Hawkesbury River, when the floods came through, some beautiful old uh, heritage buildings that we had there stayed on a small little island the Hawkesbury River hurtling down on one side and a number of kilometres of the lowlands flooded. But the historical buildings were placed in those locations and they survived and they're still doing magnificently. One of the things I have noticed, and I was lucky enough to get up in a helicopter just after the floods, was how quickly the landscape recovers. The, the greenery that recovered was so rapid, uh, whereas hearing on the radio the whirlpools near the Colbo and, and Hawkesbury uh, confluence with multiple shipping containers and large numbers of fridges cycling around a whirlpool with the roads along near the, the, the river completely uh, unable to be um, traversed the impact on the community and in the way that the uh, settlements and the use of the lands have had to move down into the flood-prone areas. So outside of where the initial uh, Macquarie townships were established, which are high and dry on the comparatively high areas, the 1-in-100-year flood zones and the areas around that are, are highly impacted. I think, though, there is a, there's an enormous amount of community strength and resilience in that Many people have experienced situations like recently over and over again. It would be really scary as it is for people up in the Blue Mountains who move up into the Blue Mountains and have no idea what they're facing or with, with bushfire. And so really it's the most recent residents and the people that are moving into areas where development is pushing down into those riskier areas in the close to the one in 100 year zone close to the, 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 the pipe of the river in areas where access is difficult, you know, with North Richmond and, and Bilpin access. But there is, I think there is enormous community resilience. And I think part of that as well is um, living in an area like the Hawkesbury and many people would have those connections with agricultural activities, the environment. They would be fairly in tune with that. And while we heard the Premier talk about... Um, you know, the one in 100 year floods, that might have been the case up the north. And these were extreme, but they were perhaps only one in 20 year. The type of floods we had here in February and March are actually very much part of this landscape and something like the bushfires that we, we have to manage and manage our livable spaces to, to work out how to be in these landscapes without putting ourselves at risk. Yeah, and, and stay out of the really vulnerable areas, which, as you say, is where a lot of the newer residents have perhaps um, found themselves located. Is that right? There is ongoing pressure you know, for expansion, you know, down into the areas. And the other thing through the landscape here is that we do not have great road infrastructure. So egress and getting people out of, of those areas without having major investment in roads is, is enormous. And that's what's happening now with the Richmond Bridge um, additional line being put in there. But it was also part of the politics of pressing for increasing the dam or cost of major infrastructure roads is astounding across the flood-prone landscapes. From where you sit and work, can you tell us something about the impact of the floods and the fires that came before on the Hawkesbury region's food production and food ecosystem, if you like? Um, it's such a key horticultural and agricultural area for Sydney and even for New South Wales fruit and veg supplies more broadly, isn't it? Yes, and it's, it's traditionally been an area where Food uh, has been grown in the in the edge edges of our uh, landscape, and um, they will continue to be. But given that they're on the edges and the edges of the uh, Blue Mountains World Heritage Area, they are very much open to the impacts of uh, transport 
blockages. There are some areas that were affected and some supplies for many of the products, but still relatively short term. I think many of the areas are able to get back into gear, get back on the business as usual fairly rapidly. I am being optimistic there is some inherent safety through design in where people put their different types of structures and production facilities and, and that sort of thing. In our area, and we have a commercial grazing operation on our Hawkesbury farm, uh, we didn't have any direct impacts. People watching over the cattle, as I said, there, there were cattle on our little island next to the Hawkesbury River, mm -hmm. didn't have any losses whatsoever. We were able to have them just moving to high enough ground, given that the change in the landscape around Hawkesbury and Richmond, you change 10, 20 centimetres and the topography and you know, a metre of change is very significant in terms of high ground and lower flood-prone areas. Mm -hmm. According to the Sydney Peri-Urban Network, at certain times of the year, the Sydney region is the source of some 90% of New South Wales vegetable products and the Hawkesbury area is the leader in perishable vegetable production in New South Wales. You must have seen quite a few producers get knocked out of action at least for a few months though, did you? I'm, I'm sure there were. And actually um, liaising directly with different producers as my role was mainly as a steward of our, our campus areas. But yes, I'm, I, there, would have, there would have been major impacts still on, on many of the local residents. It is a, uh, a, it is a food bowl, you know, right up to the um, the, the horticultural producers around the Blue Mountains World Heritage Area. Sydney's interesting. Apparently 20% of our food comes from within the Sydney Basin. This is from a UTS study. Absolutely. Uh, and that compares to something like 40% from the Melbourne sort of peri-urban area. So our, our catchments are it's a bit smaller and more precious in a way in terms of the role it plays. When I, I visited you on campus just before the floods, I think, talking about Richmond Agricultural Show going ahead, but I think that was right at the peak of the flood. Did, did, the, did the agricultural show still managed to go ahead, do you know? Not last year. In 21, it went ahead and it was astounding. The number of people that took the opportunity to get out to the show as a bit of therapy and a bit of fun. After the floods. Uh, was amazing. It was probably the biggest and best show ever. And uh, we had a combined um, presence with uh, the University, Richmond TAFE and the Centre of Excellence from the Department of Education. So it was really great. That's fantastic. That's great to hear <laughs> after such a after such a hectic time. Roger, you're qualified in agricultural science, land care, and integrated catchment management, and you've worked in some amazing places and roles, including in Thailand and even as a guest professor in China at some stage. But you've landed in Western Sydney in what's in what looks like a dream job for someone with your skills and experience. Can you tell me about what you do at Western Sydney Uni for environmental sustainability and specifically to create living labs? What are they and who's involved in them in terms of engagement and outreach and how they fit within the whole university? So my team's role is around a framework we've put together for an environmental sustainability action plan. So that has uh, our major themes, which are current, of course, uh, climate change risk. This Western Sydney really cops the worst of all of the impacts, the, the urban heat the temperature, the bushfire risk, the flood and storm impacts, all of the things that are very clear in the predictions uh, for, for moving forward. Sustainable energy, water cycle management, because we have a, an extensive uh, water recycling arrangement with Sydney Water and also stormwater harvesting on the campus and other campuses. Uh, biodiversity uh, stewardship, and we're establishing a biodiversity stewardship site with the uh, New South Wales Biodiversity Conservation Trust on Hawkesbury campus. We have other areas such as on our Parramatta campus, which is associated with the life cycle of the iconic Parramatta eels, uh, which travel out from down Parramatta River, uh, out to the Coral Sea near Vanuatu. The elvers find their way back and um, it's astounding, some of those areas there. Peri-urban agriculture and peri-urban landscape management is one of our key themes. And that's, to me, about all of the connectivity, the systemic connectivity, our ability to be land literate, to understand and work with and reconnect the landscape processes, uh, circular economy and waste management, uh, water recycling being a very good example of that, social and corporate responsibility, and those general themes that often, you know, with the, the, the modern and the engaging uh, spin on all those. We uh, use living labs as a fundamental engagement strategy. 
So across all of our campuses, they, they are in different socioeconomic situations and landscape contexts. They have different champions internally. They have different student uh, groups. We are all under one identity of Western Sydney University, but we have huge number of gems of our campus uh, assets, whether they're built assets, natural assets, and our living labs are just to use our campus assets as resources for teaching, research and engagement. And we've looked internationally at how that is interpreted, and it's a fairly broad rhetorical term used differently. So it's great because you can construct it in your own way. And the way that we construct it is, is anything that we're using our campuses for teaching, learning and, and engagement, that it is multidisciplinary. It's not business as usual. It's including a number of perspectives and that it has some type of strategic hook. It might be a partnership, a research collaboration, a broader thematic relevance. And uh, Hawkesbury is definitely the gem in terms of agroecology and our uh, ag agricultural uh, enterprises there and the setting in the peri-urban landscape. So our water recycling, the stewardship and our connectedness in that peri-urban landscape. And we really hope to have the, and continue really to have the Hawkesbury campus as a best practice example of peri-urban management. And that is not just the landscape connectivities and the, the natural resources, but also the integrated environment, uh, educational precincts with TAFE New South Wales and the Department of Education. So we have pathways between ourselves and them, the linkages to our uh, important local uh, residents, uh, such as a show, the Hawkesbury District Agricultural Association, our collaborations with Sydney Water for our water recycling and, and those sorts of things. Uh, and in the future, uh, commercial precincts, as Hawkesbury is recognised, and you're talking about the productive capacity of the Hawkesbury, it's a very strong component of the supply chain for the new Aerotropolis and the, the Western Sydney Airport. It's being very much set up so that there are biosecurity and supply chain linkages from the entire supply catchment to the airport and Hawkesbury will be a, a very important component of that. And the Cumberland Plain, which really runs across all of Greater Western Sydney, there, there was the uh, National Land Care Conference, I think, last week, and there was a great presentation from Zuela Sledge from Greater Sydney Land Care Network, and just talking about this incredible partnership they've got running across Greater Western Sydney for the Cumberland Plain Restoration Program. For example, is that something what your living labs would interact with? Absolutely. So we have a, a number of living labs associated with that. One of our key ones is our response capability of our bushfire unit. So we have our own bushfire unit supported by technical staff and um, Office of Estate and Commercial staff, uh, which look after our research facilities. Our biodiversity stewardship site will be a, a really important long-term platform for teaching and research and engagement. We, we are all very keen to engage First Nations perceptions and, and, and input into our management there, working with people like local land services and, and their interests there who are also on our campus. We have over 500 hectares of, uh, of native remnants on our Hawkesbury campus. We've been mapping them all in terms of their plant community types because uh, of the current arrangements is one of the institutional mechanisms for to recognise ecosystem services being the biodiversity stewardship sites and the plant uh, community types and the credits associated with development offsets. So what we have on the campus, some of the sections uh, of the dark green canopy is very substantive. One of the platforms of our flagship research institute they, they don't really do living labs they're the, the more the smaller tactical things that I do but they they support a, a global reference point uh, in our uke face which is how do low nutrient eucalypt forest as as in the areas here respond to increasing carbon dioxide as one of many global reference points across the world, which is really very significant. Let's zoom in now and talk about peri-urban landscape and agroecology challenges, perhaps specific to the Hawkesbury-Nepean region that you and your colleagues are working on. Would you like to sort of headline or 
select a, a few key topics that you're tackling that are really specific to place in the Hawkesbury and Nepean uh, region? Yeah, certainly. And I'm particularly curious about, you know, you've mentioned in other conversations we've had about, you know, how you're really digging in with these sort of interdisciplinary teams to to develop strategies that mimic landscape processes but sort of uh, also design better feedback loops within them as well. Absolutely. So probably our, one of our primary points is the connection through the water cycle. So traditionally, we got rid of sewage just as far away as possible if we couldn't you know, go any further than just a pit in the backyard. Urban uh, stormwater was considered just a wastewater to be uh, got rid of and um, you know, designed so that you are minimising, of course, very recognisably important flood risk as, as quickly as possible. But with climate variability, those are astoundingly important water resources. So we uh, have two water resource streams other than our potable water, where we're Sydney water from their recycled water plant, which, which draws upon sewage treatment from Richmond and uh, the other side of the Hawkesbury River. We, they supply us about 500 megalitres or million litres a year of recycled water which we use under the Australian Recycled Water Guidelines for amenity, agricultural productivity, for appropriate risk management. And we also harvest about two to 300 megalitres a year of stormwater. We capture those, put them through uh, constructed wetlands where we are currently doing research. Uh, our School of Science is doing research with Sydney Water Corporation into the performance of mature constructed wetlands to inform another offset, growing offset arrangement, which is the EPA's program for nutrient offsets. You know, how do we use and, and use the, our ecological technologies, such as constructed wetlands and, and that sort of thing, to reduce and harvest the, uh, the nutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus, and prevent their downstream impacts on our uh, on our native, you know, valuable native and natural river systems. The water recycling is really the connector, and that's been a very strong one because that also, though our agriculture is rain fed, we do have a buffer supply of recycled water, which we use for productivity. We also use the, the stormwater for the amenity and safety of our campuses. Uh, we use the recycled water for some of our playing fields to maintain the assets there. We also use it and have it as a backup for uh, research protection, such as our Uke Face site. Sorry, the Uke Face is our research site looking at CO2 carbon dioxide in the future. It's our Hawkesbury Institute's uh, research facility, and we have a drenching system to try to protect against the runoff. Uh, bushfire if it comes in from the west and potentially protection around the research assets which are supporting about 70 international collaborations and that the infrastructure is just an insurance claim but the intellectual property associated with the diaspora of future scientists is the real treasure. And that's, you know, and so what recycled water is part of our risk mitigation for our research facilities in our in those areas as well. And those research um, facilities like the Hawkesbury Environment Centre, I think they're doing amazing work on bees and pollinators and the interactions with the bushfires. And don't they also have a living lab on cooling plants for urban environments? They do. They do. Tell us about that. So that's a collaboration between the Hawkesbury Institute for Environment and Macquarie University. And they are designing and looking into what type of plants can be used for, for landscape plantings across Western Sydney. So that's a really important piece of work to help advise councils and land managers as to the types of trees and shrubs and mixes of, of vegetation that can be used in landscaping in the future. And what about protected agriculture? You've got, to, you've got lots of things going on at Hawkesbury, but when I came out, I saw that amazing, I think it's Australia's largest research protected greenhouse. Yes. So our Australian protected cropping mm. research facility is, uh, it does a lot of amazing work uh, supported by the 
Horticulture Industry Association, uh, some amazing work on native um, uh, stingless bees for pollinators in protected cropping. Uh, we are just about to do it. Um, they also do work on different types of glass, smart glass and that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, the facility was, was developed in collaboration with Fargening, which um, in itself is quite mind-boggling in that translating protected cropping technologies and design where you're protecting from sub-zero temperatures to Western Sydney where you're protecting from 50 plus degree days. And it's an area of expanding interest. Um, we will be having a new research facility soon. We're also looking at developing commercial greenhouse precincts because certainly protected cropping is going to be a, a major growing area of interest with the potential for uh, feed into the Eritropolis and the, the, the Hawkesbury of the future. And also just resilience because so many growing areas now have, as you've sort of uh, mentioned, extreme cold and extreme heat, but also within not even just a growing season, within 24 hours, you can have these incredible variations in temperature now, which we haven't been seeing in the same way before. Is that right? Yes, there are more and more of those sorts of perturbations and you know, streams and changes. Mm thinking about protected cropping in the future and our landscape is without some really strong protection, we might be looking at a situation where in the higher and drier areas, only the either the very high investment and value compared to um, real estate or people that are able to maintain their heritage and have ownership and use uh, sort of medium uh, technology uh, protected cropping will be in those areas just south of Richmond, that's all uh, one in, just on the edge of one in 100 year flood zone. So it actually gets boggy, but it doesn't actually pond, or well, not very often, not unless we get, you know, the uh, one in 50, one in 100 year. And one of the real challenges is looking at ways and enablers by uh, councils and other uh, advocates to be able to enable protected cropping in those one in 100 year flood zones or just on the edge of those where they're not in direct competition with um, urban development. Because if, as we see in many places, if it's just a direct competition in terms of value for money and perceived value real estate, you know, in terms of its power of, um, of a dollar is, is far more significant to uh, agriculture. And we know that many of the agriculture producers in the Sydney Basin, many of the um, Vietnamese growers and that sort of thing, have been growing and, and living in areas which they don't have secure tenancy in many areas. Um, so one of, the, one of the scenarios I think we have to look at is very much mm -hmm. having our agriculture embedded in those edges, the edges of our, um, of our waterways, our riparian areas, generating ecosystem services and productive agriculture working alongside and having that, that those edges with um, our suburbs and, and working together. So that's, that's really the, the landscape connectivity that we really need. We need to be drawing upon the resources from the urban connecting the fragmented landscape and the risks associated with the fragmentation, yeah. for example, through the water cycle uh, with recycled water and recognising that it is not just a, a, a simple uh, competition either between agriculture and natural areas. Managed carefully, we can have both generating ecosystem services and our smarts such as constructed wetlands generating and institutionalising ecosystem services and recognition for them. Mm, and, and, of course, protected agriculture and variations on it um, are pretty integral to urban agriculture across the cityscape as well, aren't they, at different scales? So, And I think we, we, we're going to need more urban agriculture wherever we live uh, going forward. I'm really fascinated, you know, because sitting where I do, watching the bushfires and then the mass, you know, all that, you know, a denuded landscape immediately after the fires and thinking, oh, my goodness, I hope there's not a flood, there's going to be so much erosion, and then sort of a year later there was. From, from where you sit, you know, and with deep knowledge of the water system and the landscape and close to the mountains, what was it like in terms of um, erosion and runoff from the bushfires into the water systems and dealing with nutrification and, I don't know, just much more intense erosion in the 
hills and valleys around the Richmond-Windsor area. Was that a, was that an issue or did the landscape seem to recover pretty quickly? We were lucky from the bushfires down there. Uh, in, in, in fact, 2019, 2020, a lot of the huge fires were to the north and, and south. We're very lucky there. We do continue to have hazard reduction burns and and follow that, you know, having burns with, you know, not closer than seven-year cycles and have some responses. We do believe that, um, you know, managing fire is very much part of that cycle. Our, our, our natural bushlands are, have evolved to work with fire. So if we can have a cycle of fire which is not too intense, not too often, that, um, you know, we can do that. The challenge, of course, is how you manage that frequency within the very small windows of opportunity that come up for rural fire service, the issues of, uh, of air quality on Sydney, which are significant. Yes, there will be, if, if there are downpours after, after fires, there will be runoff of, of nutrients. However, I do believe that a lot of our natural systems, if they are maintained in a ecological communities of, of a natural type, you know, with, with, with all their components there, that they are resilient. Both our waterways and our, um, our landscapes can cope with the, the fire. It just needs our help to try to manage the, the compartmentalisation and the management of, of the, the, where the fires occur. We saw some fires down just south of here, which uh, you could see on the bomb uh, radar, where you see that the, the fires creating the um, clouds to form and, and then the plume of uh, thunderclouds being driven from, this, uh, from fire-generated systems which is quite astounding. We met um, at an event called From Triage to Recovery, which was about the bushfires and sort of immediate responses. A lot of people at that event and, and elsewhere, of course, talking about uh, traditional cool fire burning practices and uh, getting more Indigenous knowledge, traditional knowledges uh, integrated into RFS and other fire management and hazard reduction knowledge. Do you see that happening on a greater scale? I know that we would really like ourselves to engage in cool burns. I think it would be very exciting to be able to look at those culturally appropriate burns and the, uh, the traditional custodians, you know, lived and, and uh, experiences in the way we manage the, uh, our burning practices. I think one of the ones which is not directly related to Indigenous perspectives but what, that we're trying to incorporate in our resilience documents for the university, resilience to climate change and our bushfire, is what came out of from CSIRO and the chief scientists of looking at the resilience as a life cycle. So you make just a simple, robust model. So it's all about getting your preparations and your planning, your escalations. You know, we follow normal bushfire risk escalations with our preparedness on the, the university. Then having your operational responses so you know that the operational responses are there but they're not taking a lot of effort into the recovery to checking how people are to having time to improve the lessons learned to make sure that the recovery goes through because the impacts are on people and the mental health of people even people with enormous amount of experience when caught out in extreme conditions is dire and severe um, so even just that lesson learned of thinking about resilience as a little life cycle of its own for every incident that comes up and how we prepare, respond, react, look after ourselves and others, recover, revisit, learn from it, be ready. to Like a new everyday literacy, really, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> for living with a changing climate. Roger, you work in the heart of Western Sydney and you've already mentioned the big plans by business and state governments for the Western Sydney Aerotropolis and agribusiness hub and so forth. What role do you see the Hawkesbury campus and Living Labs contributing to, to those uh, particular visions? We are certainly very strongly looking into uh, uh, the protected cropping area mm -hmm. and uh, commercial protected cropping and the research into protected cropping, uh, not just in Australia, but globally. We also contribute uh, into, you know, through the, our regenerative agriculture and that sort of thing as, as a, a good case study of more extensive agricultural practices and how that can be climate friendly. And all of us across, whether that we are environmental sustainability, such as myself or the Hawkesbury Institute, 
is all about uh, climate change resilience, how you contribute to urban redevelopment as we're doing on our Warrington campus to be a foundational asset for the local community. Uh, how, do you, how do you address in our agricultural areas around those built areas, how they connect as the green space, the which plant where living lab, how our plantings, how our cooling and, and strategies work. One of our key researchers, Sebastian Fausch, does a lot of heat mapping for the councils to look at what the, the benchmark is for how we can cool um, critical areas and look at social assets of those. We're also starting to talk with people like the, um, the, the local health districts because they uh, come to resilient health care and not just sustainability in their operations, but what does that mean for, you know, for, for the health impacts of uh, climate change risk? We are working with local councils who are also with those areas. Uh, we can see many of the, the peri-urban councils as reflected in that the SPUN network you mentioned about. Mm. I think they're really at the forefront of operationalising a lot of environmental sustainability attributes, you know, from the, and, uh, and, um, services to their community because at the edge around the western uh, western sydney edge we are really feeling that the pointy end of the climate change impacts mm, and the heat and, and there's amazing um what is it the five million the five million trees canopy projects and um uh, there's a lot going on around heat management isn't there there is there, there's an enormous amount we really wish to be embedded in in all of those conversations whether it's from the social scientists people looking at recovery, at community resilience, our, our landscapes, uh, our operational sustainability of our campuses. We want to be as much as any other organisation in the area walking the talk and our lessons learned. The Hawkesbury campus is home to to the Centre in Excellence in Peri-Urban Futures, which uh, is, is, is quite a big mouthful, but it's pretty exciting. Yep. And last year, you know, you won some significant national awards for what you've been doing. You've already spoken about some of the key areas, I suppose. But if you did have to pick, you know, if you could pick, I don't know, one or two or two or three key agroecological and landscape achievements from the centre's work to date that you'd really like to share with other Australian communities or towns or cities, what would be your top priorities or what would be the two or three things you'd most like to collaborate with other cities experiencing similar challenges? My personal favourite is definitely regenerative agriculture embedded in water recycling and therefore embedded in the peri-urban landscape processes. Peri-urban is the edge of, it's a dynamic edge of every city, every township worldwide. It's dynamic, it's got all of the same questions we have in terms of access to water, uh, access to area to grow food, the food miles for our future cities, dealing with the potential negative impacts and the need to harness those landscapes. So we are working with the cascades of energy and materials because we all have images in our mind of the you know, smashed uh, old cars and trucks and burnt out bits of rubbish and things where those cascades of energy get disrupted, you know, mosquitoes carrying Ross River virus and this sort of thing. We can do much better than that, and that's lessons for the peri-urban from any case example, not just Hawkesbury, is relevant to anywhere. And we have always had wonderful visitors from China, Nepal, India, and because we think it's such a common overarching issue coming down to communities, uh, often those with, with less resources, less access to resources, and in dynamic situations, and peri-urban is nothing if it's not dynamic. Yeah, and, and and across Australia, there's a lot of little country towns that you you know you drive into them and you just think, oh, I wish somebody was loving the edge of this town, you know, where those neglected creeks and gullies and waterways and wetlands could be, or or have got rubbish in them or whatever. But interestingly, Hawkesbury Nepean obviously flows to the ocean. <laughs> How far does your um uh, your water recycling or your water print or focus? extend i mean what what our rivers put into the oceans has a huge impact on the food that the fish that grow in the oceans can you talk about that at all yeah well, certainly it is all connected and it's all connected by the water cycle if you can tactically have small cases where you have real pieces of leverage in our water cycle 
you can have impacts right back to our storages and like our demand for water. Using recycled water for non-drinking uses reduces our demand on potable water significantly. If in the same way, using the water and the agriculture to generate ecosystems recreates those edges around our landscapes, we're called ecotones. And, and they, them and the agricultural systems and the soil systems that they're supported generate so many of our ecosystem services, uh, not just the food production, but you know, through to the, the pollination services, water retention services, soil uh, microbiological services, you know, the, the recycling of nutrients and materials. And if you look right downstream uh, through our stormwater uh, capture, uh, removing microplastics from uh, from our our waterways is such a phenomenally vast uh, impact. You know, when we hear of the plastic bergs and the microplastics being found throughout our oceans. So, how's the how's the Hawkesbury Nepean doing on that front, for example? I, I couldn't. I know that uh, some of our um, uh, lead researchers are, are looking at microplastics. They had, a, I think, there was a recent day by um, one of our key researchers in the School of Science looking at microplastics in the Hawkesbury Nepean. I think one which is increasingly on our consciousness as part of our consciousness and particularly our next generation, our students, the generation coming through, circular economy, microplastics, sustainable energy, climate change resilience. It's really a no-brainer to them. So I, I think, you know, we, we are slowly picking up and catching them and there's certainly areas that we want to walk out, uh, do our part in. Uh, and it's such a vast challenge, it's, it's mind-boggling, but I have um, enormous admiration and, and, and confidence that if we start going in the right direction, that uh, our, our younger generations will really just make it um, business as usual. Things rather like the seatbelt sort of analogy. So things like that. Once, or, you know, like I, I do a little bit of mountain bike riding, I always wear a helmet. You know, once you get used to it, and I think it's those live behaviour. It's all about embedding sustainability in all our behaviours, all our buildings, all our organisations. And I think we, I'm, a, I'm an eternal optimist, but I think we're all going in the right direction. And the pace of improvement is considerable. We're, we're a very optimistic point of improvement, I believe. Oh, that's, that's, that's good news. I was going to ask you what inspires or encourages you, and I think you've sort of answered that. And certainly action on the single-use plastics and plastics generally is moving really, really fast and not before time, isn't it? So what, what does keep you awake at night then environmentally? Anything? You don't have to answer that if you don't want to. No, I think the, the, the thing that um, I, I always notice and always does concern me a little bit is I try to make sure that I put in place in my home what I do in my work so that, like in our work, we now have 100% green power. I have that in the house. I have an electric vehicle. I have those sorts of things. But the only way that I can access that, that sort of thing is to have a good job at a university where I can afford to pay for those innovations. It's still this, this fundamental problem like peri-urban situations across the world is what do you do when you don't have access to those? And I think the biggest challenge is getting the, the technologies to a point where everybody who's struggling to pay their bills has that embedded in the normal services that they buy. In their, you know, We're just looking at um, carbon neutrality strategies and so much of, our, of it, and I think where big changes are needed and you can see positive movement, is in our supply chains. And many industries are already stepping into that faster than governments, but it's how to embed all the environmentally sensitive technologies into every, every man's business. It's so that you know, you don't, it's not something that you have to pay a premium for. In fact, uh, it should be completely the opposite through simplification. Yeah, so it's a question of equity and and common access, yeah. So just talking about Sydney's food bowl in 20 years, will we still have one? Will it be bigger, smaller, or how will it look? I think it will be very much more connected. I think a lot of our spaces, and you see sort of area that is flood-prone, pasture, sodic soils, it's a big sodic swamp. I could see that being all protected cropping, high-tech, 
food production, some going as Hawkesbury produce to the markets and through market chains, you know, to the eastern suburbs in Sydney or anywhere, and people know of its provenance. And now, now it comes from Hawkesbury. And also uh, similar produce going out through the Eritropolis to everywhere throughout Asia. Asia. Because um, I think our credentials of uh, clean and green are significant. Our traditions of regional provenance are very significant. Our consumer expectations and the, the, the great take-up of farmers' markets shows that there is a very strong ethos of that. And I think that will drive a real, a sort of an appropriate intensification. I don't think, not you know, I, I, I hope it's not an industrialization. I think there will be some of the bigger corporate players uh, I think there, uh, but there will be, I think, a greater diversity of food production. I, I do believe that if we capture locally our water, uh, utilise our our soil resources, utilise our you know the platforms for building, the the limits are, are, are almost endless in terms of feeding the Sydney of the future and all of our you know trading areas. Uh, I think it. I think it's very positive. Mm, and, and hopefully operators of different scales and types, as you've just said, not just a few big consolidated players. Yeah. Some previous work we did in um, adjacent to the Blue Mountains World Heritage Area, looking at agri-industries as buffers, showed there were, we, we were talking with four different orchardists who had very different cultural backgrounds, very different philosophies, very different production strategies, some very local, some able to get their produced by um, trucks with airbags to any supermarket overnight. Um, that diversity, I think, really, really works. And when we're looking at some of their environmental outcomes for being near the, the Blue Mountains World Heritage Area, very similar outcomes in terms of the contributing to the landscape resilience, and as a buffer for the encroaching urban sprawl. And we, we do have such a great diversity of um, you know, our um, ethnic producers our, you know, in the area, Macedonian, Khmer, um, they are astounding, astoundingly great producers. I think that sort of uh, diversity hope, you know, will continue to grow. That's fantastic. And COVID must be um, knocking producers around at the moment, just in terms of labour and harvesting and so forth. What, what sort of, what's what's it like on the ground at the moment with just like the everyday, what are you hearing? All, all I notice really from our own commercial operation is it's good that with current restrictions that the farmers can continue to do their farming. So our, our uh, livestock coordinators and farm production coordinators, they need to be there for animal welfare. They need to be there for critical uh, operational areas, uh, logistics and people like that are still able to be there. I'm sure, you know, as we had last year, there would be significant impacts on some supply chains, especially cross borders and things like that. But um, outside of that, I, I, I'm not sure how everyone's doing. I think everyone's probably, you know, doing it a little bit tough, of course. Regeneration and resilience, I mean, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's becoming a new literacy for all of us, I suppose. They're really curly challenges, but the outcomes and the processes can be really rich when people connect with each other and for the places, the animals, the plants, the landscapes that they love and that they really want to care for. Western Sydney has been, you know, in the thick of it all so, so deeply for the last two years. Just, just sort of wrapping up, are, are there particular uh, projects or community initiatives or partnerships that you've been involved with, either with Western Sydney Uni or personally, um, that you've seen over the last, say, two years that have just really inspired you about how communities and different partners come together to just heal and care for the places they love? The first one that springs to mind is our, our people working on our farm and our students under the new rubric of regenerative agriculture, because it is it is one that looks at the health uh, metaphor throughout the system from soil health, the uh, health and, and diversity of the, the food and the fodder that's produced leading on to the health of the, the maternal health of the, the cows um, to the, I think, to the resilience of the people managing that because they're so passionate about it. 
and also that it's um, it's it's wonderfully contestable. You know, looking at the you know there are core concepts of you know of soil health and um, not leaving bare soil and uh, you know watching and, and not uh, overgrazing and, and all those sorts of things, but a lot of um, flexibility for people to say this is mine and this is my part and my sort of stewardship of regeneration. So I think that's that's a really important one that people can be can see that they can be part of the regenerative practices of something bigger than them, but something that is also very close to their heart. I also see that in some of our students. So one of my my favourite living labs are our uh, students who are involved in a um, a show team. So they take our cattle to the shows and Hawkesbury and, and that sort of thing. But the really key thing is we just provide the support is a peer mentoring system. The, the elder students teach the, the, the younger students, they, they lead through and become the, the teachers and the mentors of the younger students. When school uh, children come onto uh, the campus, you know, or through the, the, the TAFE, um, they often step in actually ahead of the traditional lecturers to be doing the mentoring. So I think that is also a really good one in that it's all about those, uh, the communities of practice and the mentoring practices within those communities of practice. You know, I think we're, we're all well beyond the stage where uh, everything needs to be formalised into roles and who's doing the teaching and who's doing the learning. It's all about lifelong learning and working with whoever you like to work with and, you know, and by your own values, whoever are your communities of practice. From a conceptual place, that's recognised as sort of the building blocks of social learning. Uh, but I think they're the things that are really exciting to see. You, you keep your radar out for those, and they 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 are um, uh, attractors, you know, in a in a sort of a, a, a chaos theory or self-organising system. They self-organise, they attract, they connect, they network. Thank you, Roger. I think that's a, a really good place, perhaps, to wrap up. Do you have any um? Any further further comments or final thoughts you'd like to share about um, Living Labs and what you're doing in Western Sydney and uh, where to from here? No, other than just to say to anybody uh, and if they are ever travelling to Western Sydney, give us a call, drop in. We're always interested in showing people around, talking to people what we're doing. That sort of engagement uh, is something that we, 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 we really enjoy doing as well. Anybody listening, um, you know, if you happen to be near Richmond or Western Sydney University to come and drop in. Thanks very much, Roger. Great to speak with you. Mm, thanks, Anthea. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on Facebook at nourishing matters to chew on. If you like what you hear and would like to support us, you can buy us a coffee or donate at givenow.com.au backslash nourishing or give us a rating and a review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.